If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Deborah Sampson. She'll be answering our call on March 11th, 1805, at the age of 44. This is an important day for Deborah because nearly 20 years ago, she served in the Continental Army as an elite frontline soldier during the American Revolution. After much lobbying for her bravery by friends such as Paul Revere, Congress approved a military pension on this day. But what makes her service different is that she did it disguised as a man for 17 months. When you hear the story of her father that abandoned her, leaving their family with nothing, you'll understand why someone could go to such extremes to fight for her country in an attempt to create opportunities for herself that did not exist for women in her time. In the end... Deborah shares the consequences of using a penknife to dig musket balls from her leg and explains the sacrifice of living with shrapnel in that leg for 20 years. By the end of our conversation, I found myself being thankful that others were willing to make these tremendous sacrifices so that we could all live the lives we live now. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and seamstresses everywhere, I give you Deborah Sampson. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Sampson? It is. I am married now, so Mrs. Gannett is more appropriate, if you please. Oh, forgive me. That's right, Mrs. Gannett. In our time, everybody knows you as Mrs. Sampson, and I guess that may, of course, you're married now, so you would go by that name. I, I have to tell you, I... I'm looking forward to speaking with you. I've been looking forward to speaking with you all day. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm actually calling you from the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing four feet from one another in the same room. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And you've just lived this amazing life, and I was hoping I could ask you some questions today. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first. So by a recording, you mean a transcription of the conversation of sorts? Yeah, it is. It's, it really is just a device that, uh, that makes a duplicate of our conversation so that somebody could listen to it again, like it was happening in real time. And in our time, there's a way where people can distribute this around the world where thousands, millions of people could all listen to it at the exact same time. I'm sure it sounds very strange must be an invention of Dr. Franklin or Mr. Jefferson. This is not the first time that somebody has said that Dr. Franklin had something to do with this, and certainly you would think that Dr. Franklin w would be in on something like this. Are you familiar with Dr. Franklin? I never had the fortune and the good fortune to meet him personally. However, it is impossible not to be familiar with Dr. Franklin. He is a man of possibility and great aptitude in many different subjects. Yeah, gosh, I'll tell you, not too long ago I had a conversation with him, and i got to be honest with you, he's not the easiest person to keep up with in a conversation. <laughs> you have to be on your toes the whole time. I can imagine, and that is probably why he served us so well in the courts of London as well as in Paris. Yeah, most definitely. 
I, as I've read about you and I've learned about your life, and you're so you're such a role model for so many people. It's my understanding that right now you have a musket ball in your leg at this moment. Is that correct? This is a myth that is propagated on and on. It is not that I have a musket ball per se. I do indeed have shrapnel from a wound that was caused by a musket ball fire lock that had been fired in my direction, whether it was purposefully aimed directly at me or whether I was the unlucky and unfortunate soul who received its battery. I know not. However, I was unfortunately in the line of fire at Terrytown in New York, which is a beautiful area, but one that was clouded with the siege of loyalists versus continentals in our war for independence. I did have to remove the majority of the debris, including said musket ball, from my thigh using my own knife and lived to tell the tale. But unfortunately, there was very little I could do to retrieve all of the shrapnel of the debris that had been lodged in my flesh without, of course, seeking proper medical care, which I could not do. So there is some nugget of truth in this yet. However, it is not quite as extreme as many will have you believe. It did affect my mobility for the rest of my days. I will tell you that, although I can't claim that there is a full musket ball still lodged in my thigh. In our time, the lives that we live are very different than what they are in your time. People don't hunt for food. It's We have these devices in our homes that keep our food cold and we have all the food we want. And there's easy ways to get around. You don't have to get a horse and buggy. Everything is very easy in our time. You're being very cavalier about the about digging shrapnel or musket balls, whole or in part, out of your leg. And this sounds like... I can't even imagine the thought of digging it out of my leg. So when this happened to you, when you got shot, why not have the doctor dig it out? Why are you digging it out yourself? This is a wonderful question and one that I wish I could answer differently. The prospect of discovery as a woman disguising her sex and portraying a boy the prospect of discovery was far more dangerous and indeed potentially lethal than the perspective, pain, and discomfort of removing the musket ball from my own body. If I had sought medical attention, which I will remind you and anyone who cares to listen, that I did receive care at a field hospital near the area of Mount Vernon in New York, where I was treated for a wound on my head, a laceration. And once that laceration was stitched closed by a very valiant French surgeon, of course, the French very much by our side during these conflicts, I realized that if he saw the blood dripping down my trousers, he would certainly ask me to drop my trousers, which what would he find? So I had to take this opportunity to steal myself from the hospital, and he was caring for another soldier, and upon stealing myself from said field hospital, I stuck a piece of cloth in between my teeth, I poured some of the rum which we are rationed as soldiers to receive, and I poured that over the wound and then took my pen knife, which we are issued as standard accoutrement, and wiped it off and began to dig. And the prospect of discovery would have most certainly at that point led me to be thrown in a cell where I would have bled out or been infected by the wound and the alternative was remove it myself, stitch the wound together. As I, a woman of proper needlework skills, am able to do, stitch my leg back together on my own. And that seemed the safer of the two options. So 
Is this one of your earlier battles? or It was the very first, in fact. There were skirmishes that occurred, but none were. I was truly engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat until Terrytown and Eastchester. There were some after that, but yes, it was trial by fire. It was one of the first conflicts I had ever experienced. And and so so you take the cut on your head, and then you take the two, the two shots in your leg, and then somebody carries you from the battlefield? Is that what happened? You've said them in a bit of reverse order. I was carried from the battlefield due to my injuries, and I asked them to leave me. I said I can be of no use. I will slow you down, and I best be left here. And they wouldn't hear of it. They, I don't know why, perhaps I had already in some way impressed the brothers in arms around me. I was, against my will, carried henceforth to the field hospital, and once my senses had begun to return upon receiving some medical care, I realized that I needed to escort myself, take leave from that location, or else as a woman, I would be thrown in a cell and I would most likely be left to bleed out or suffer from any illness that came over me. Because the courts were closed, there was no way they could put me on trial. We certainly didn't have a government by which I could be tried, as we are a rebellion, a nation in rebellion. So there would have been really no hope for me had I been discovered. I would have either bled out or suffered the consequences of infection or festering. So during this time where you're wounded and you are, you're cut, was there a time where you blacked out and then you lost consciousness? Of course, and when you have to recall these moments are very difficult to, they're very difficult to, to trace because we have the misfortune as a as an army soldier, if I were in the Navy, at least I would be eating three square meals a day. Maybe they're not the biggest squares that we would like to be ingesting, but I would still be eating at regular intervals. But in the Army, we are not fed on a regular basis, and when we are fed, it is not always of the highest quality or the most nutrition. We rarely stop for large meals unless we have the luxury of setting up camp. And by setting up camp, a regiment of up to 1,000 soldiers is setting up camp for some time. And that would be the time when we would go out and hunt and fish and really have adequate means by which to eat properly. The mere reality of being in a constant state of hunger and fatigue is so overwhelming that the moments of combat actually provide the bit of exhilaration in the heinous most horrible sense because you are exhilarated to open the sluices of human blood but it is the food in that moment of the soul that keeps you going when that combat energy that frantic sort of shivering in the bones ends this is where your your malnourishment your exhaustion your lack of water this is where they come ten times f more strongly folding over you. And so there are moments where you lose your concept of reality and your concept of self and where you are and how much time has passed and you can't trace whether I was, uh, whether I had fallen from my senses for an hour or for a few seconds. It is impossible to tell unless someone has observed it and has relayed that information to you. I will say, however, that I did know that my injuries were of enough caliber that they needed to heal before I went back into a regular 
routine of service. And there was a soldier who I knew named Private Snow, Richard Snow, a very good man, young man. I would have called myself a young boy, really. I told folks I was 15. Mr. Snow was a bit older, maybe 18, 19, or 20 or so. I'm not sure exactly. However, he was ill. He had contracted a fever of some sort, and his illness increased and became exaggerated by our constant state of flux in terms of where we were and how we were moving. And so we, I volunteered to care for him. And we had made an arrangement with a gentleman by the name of Abraham Van Tassel. And this is along Hudson and Dutchess Valley. Hudson Valley is in Westchester County, and Dutchess County is sort of above it where you've got places like Fishkill and Peekskill and so on and so forth, if mm -hmm. I'm remembering, recalling my maps correctly. And so Abraham Van Tassel had agreed to lodge Private Snow and I. I cared for him and... Also, the benefit of that was I would be able to recuperate my injury in my leg without being suspected. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't realize, and the Army was unaware that Abraham Van Tassel is a loyal, he's a Tory. And as many were in that area, although he had pledged allegiance to us, to our American independence cause, our cause of liberty and self-government and freedom, in reality, he was harboring loyalist cowboys under the leadership of Colonel Delancey. And Delancey is a New Yorker who is of great renown for his soldierly abilities and is a stalwart supporter of Parliament and of the King. And so he did produce an army of men, irregulars. They weren't actually enrolled in the British Regular Army, commissioned per se. They were irregular soldiers, so just as our militiamen, our Minutemen, had fought at Lexington and Concord and in the early years of the war as militiamen and volunteers, these men were fighting for their land as volunteers and actually did serve with such great courage that the King and Parliament did pay them after the war for their service. But Mr. Van Tassel was harboring people such as Delancey and his loyalist cowboys. And we refer to them as such because they would ambush us and steal our cattle and our horses and whatnot. He made it very difficult for Private Snow and I to survive, refused us proper amounts of food and water, kept us locked in a garret, which was intemperate and of extreme conditions. And without enough food and water and without the comfort of a proper bed, Private Snow passed away in my arms after 10 days of convalescing. I had convalesced, he had worsened, unfortunately. And that was unfortunately how I was able to convalesce, but lost a friend in the process. As I, as I listen to you talk about this, you're talking about starvation, you're talking about people dying in your arms, you're talking about just being surrounded by men on the battlefield. I have to guess that men are not always as clean as they could be, a little vulgar than they should be. And the fear of always being jailed for being caught, the fear of whatever might happen to you if you got caught, this all sounds awful. Why did you want to put yourself in this situation to begin with, as a woman? My life had always been, in some senses, Tony, awful. This was an opportunity to live. I had never lived as an independent person, regardless of whether man or woman, I had, I had never lived as an independent person. 
My father left, abandoned us when I was five, told us he was seeking employment, and never came back. And where he is now, I, I can't say for certain. I don't know truly if he is alive or dead. I have a suspicion, perhaps, that he might be alive somewhere and maybe did not truly understand the responsibility and the weight of caring for me and my seven siblings and and ran from that responsibility. My mother, without any alternatives, cast out, bound out, I will use the term bound out myself and many of my siblings to relatives. I unfortunately was placed with my aunt and not unfortunately because she was my aunt, but unfortunately because a wonderful woman as she was in ill health and that distemper grew and by the time I had been living with her for three or four years she passed away and then I was sent into indentured servitude because without any more relatives who could care for me and provide me enough sustenance to keep me healthy indentured servitude was the only option and if you're unfamiliar with indentured servitude imagine just being placed from one household to the next and wherever they are willing to give you enough food to keep you healthy and a place on which to sleep whether that be a room if you're so lucky or a pile of hay if you are not you live there and you work for free I dare not say I worked in the manner of an in, of a slave of a Negro I do have friends and I did have friends who were Negro slaves at that time and who are now free and I will never compare my situation to theirs however I knew no freedom I knew no no future besides that of indentured servitude and then marriage which is in many cases another form of indentured servitude whereby a woman cannot maintain any of her own income the product of her industry she cannot maintain the rights over her own children and that was my future my entire life I could see in the palm of my hand as a servant in many ways enslaved and when the war came it was boys on the household where I lived at that time which was the Thomas household mr. Jeremiah Thomas he had he had many boys living on the household a homestead of ten boys and mrs. Thomas a wonderful woman I watched as these boys of varying ages some older some younger some similar age to my own in their respective responses to the frantic climate of Boston at that time the destruction of the tea and the passage of the the Stamp Act which subsequently caused riots in the streets about 10 years prior to the destruction of the tea right. I saw these men see opportunity in their lives to make something of themselves and it is impossible if you are a human of observation and of intellect to not realize that there is a possibility that those opportunities could be open to you if you were not what you are and for that, if I were not a woman, I would have had the same opportunities I saw marching across these boys' faces, knowing they could make something of themselves, and also knowing they might never return. But the prospect of going and proving oneself to oneself as well as to society is oftentimes for the right mind and the strong mind much more appealing. Mrs. Gannett, as you tell this story, I hear the story of Alexander Hamilton. This is what Alexander Hamilton was looking for. I feel like you could just take your story and his story. Basically, you're born without privilege. You have nothing. 
and then you see war as an opportunity to elevate your station. And the only difference is that he could be himself, and the only way you could do that is you would have to be somebody else. Do you see some similarities in that story, or are you familiar with that story? Of course, yes, very familiar. Not only was he a soldier on the battlefield on which I also served, but he is the head of our treasury and has established our financial system. Mr. Hamilton is a legend, even for us. Mr. Hamilton, I will say, could not be who he was. If I'm not mistaken, he is the child of a woman who had to work in a way of selling her body. And if I'm not mistaken, having to carry that burden around with you means that in reality he also had to conceal his past and conceal his identity. Or else had that been common knowledge at that time, he probably would not have made it into the doorway of many of the buildings in which he excelled. I suppose we all have these masks that we have to wear sometimes. Yours is different, though. The courage that it took for you to do this, it blows my mind, because at some point you had to be thinking, even if I – mean, let's just play this out. All right, so let's say that you are this incredible battlefield soldier, and you're just rushing out to every battlefield, and everywhere you go you win, and they promote you to general. At some point, isn't – aren't you going to have – isn't the world going to find out that – you are a woman, and were you thinking that at some point this is going to come out no matter what? Every day, every moment. I was raised for promotion. I was multiple times raised for promotion, and some I refused for that very reason. You were offered promotions and you refused them? Of course. I guess you'd have to. You almost have to hide in the shadows a little bit to accomplish what you want. That's interesting. When I petitioned for the pension, I described myself as a, a private soldier serving in the army. However, informally, I was promoted to the rank of corporal, and even higher than that, to which I rejected any further promotions and chose not to petition to Congress with the guise of a officer's, an officer's duty. I did not want to ask for more than I could chew. Oh, no, that makes sense. I'm actually a little confused on something that you just said. So if you are, you describe your life as awful, and the things, the fact that your father left you, that is, I don't know what it could be more painful than that as a child. And you looking for this opportunity to rise up and do something extraordinary with your life, if you're looking for that opportunity and you're offered the promotion, why not take the promotion and see if, you know, where that can take you? If you're goal was to rise or did you have other goals my goal was to survive my goal was to live and survive and fight for my country and achieve something that we all knew we deserved and that is self-government and I hope that new government would treat us women in a manner that was as they hoped to be treated and up until now I still hoped that will change and I begin to lose a little bit of faith that our United States Congress will see the benefits of allotting a woman, especially a woman who has experience in life, like myself, the right to vote for our representatives, as we so fought. But my goal was never glory. My goal was never riches. It was only to live comfortably without want for food 
or want for shelter. It was only to be able to support myself and to choose how I lived my life every day that I woke up and was able to breathe and live. More than that, I don't deserve. If they wanted to give it to me, I would have refused it because I didn't want to bring... There was so much risk in everything I did, Tony. It was just so difficult for me to accept more when I knew that the stakes of what I could lose became more with every promotion or honor that I was given. It's as though the more people you perhaps betray their trust in pretending to be something you are not, and you let that betrayal climb higher and higher, and then they discover it, and their anger toward you become toward you will become more and more extreme. And that was always what was in my mind was, if I kept growing, if I not growing but growing in status, if I kept growing in rank, if I kept climbing, and become more of the right hand man, for lack of a better term, right hand woman, I could not be to my General John Patterson, the potential downfall, the potential onslaught of punishment would be more extreme. And this was always what was in my mind. The thought of discovery was always more horrifying in my bones than the thought of death. Disgrace is worse than death. That is my family's motto, in fact. Disgrace is worse than death? Yes. Interesting. And as that would be so important in your family, you had to constantly be living in this fear that you were going to be found out what you were because the moment that was found out, you had to assume, as you said, you end up in a cell or bleeding out or whatever, but it's instant disgrace, isn't it? Yes, yes. Can you imagine? The history says that you fought valiantly, and courage is not something that you're missing. Can you imagine if somebody had recognized your courage above others and I don't know, George Washington would have asked you to his side or something like that at a really high level, something that you couldn't turn down. I mean, it would have been wonderful and horrifying. Of course, had my commander-in-chief ordered me to do something, I would have had to take a long, a long time to, as long as I could take, perhaps that would only have been a moment's pause in the moment, but as long as I could, I would have to ponder over the circumstances of what that would mean for myself and for my commander-in-chief. But am I able to disobey my commander-in-chief? I am not. That would be disgrace. So you are correct in assuming if I had been ordered to increase rank, to increase duty, to increase the number of men serving beneath me, if that had been my order, I would have obeyed. I was never ordered to do such a thing. I was asked. Mrs. Gannon, is it possible that you were born the wrong sex? That this wasn't your choice? I don't understand that question. I'm sorry. What I mean, is it possible that you were meant to be a male? Because the, the fact that you would put yourself in harm's way this way, and the fact that you would, you have these qualities that I think are to being willing to run onto the battlefield and kill people. It doesn't seem that this is very common for the women of your time. Is this possibly a mistake in the womb, perhaps? Were you supposed to be a male? Do you wish you would have been born a male? No, sir. I do not wish I were born a male. For I've grown up surrounded by boys, and I have seen their lives and what they go through, and their fury with one another in a constant fit of competition 
and their inability to show any sign of weakness whatsoever without being disparaged and without being humiliated by their peers. And that is not a life that I choose to live. I have grown up surrounded by men. I was surrounded by my brothers upon birth. I was and sisters as well. I am one of eight, as I said, we are not all the same sex. But as I was sent into indentured servitude, the homestead upon which I spent the majority of my life, the Thomas homestead of which I have spoken prior, these boys were equals to me in every way, including depending on where they were in their growth in strength and in power. My stature, if you are not aware, is of a man's stature. I am upwards of seven inches and five feet. So I was on the playing field and in the fields of work of equal stature to a man and need not be born into a man's body or of the male sex in order to work in the manner that a boy works or a man works. I feel very fortunate that I am in the body that I am in. It is a strong body, the one that has been injured and was exposed to the harsh elements of the outdoors for upwards of 18 months consecutively. That has, of course, weakened my constitution. However, there is no other body but my own that I could imagine myself living in, and there is no restriction to what a woman's body is capable of doing. I know that, for I have lived it. I have worked in the fields. I have chopped wood. I have also sat at the loom and woven and spun, as most know how to do, of this male and female sex. We are taught to spin, although it is many who are doing that that are of the female persuasion. And these are skills that all are capable of doing, however, and I myself know for one that I am capable in the field of battle and in the field of labor and the field of agriculture as well. Being a man and understanding how men think, I'm thrilled that this is your answer because we are filthy creatures inside and out. <laughs> and definitely you are of the fair sex. And so I, I, I think it's just incredible that, you're, that you do know who you are. And you're not looking to change. You're looking to change the world, not change yourself so much. Oh, that is a big global aspiration indeed. And I will say, though, I may be of the fair sex and... Uh... As Congress stated it, I may have been a soldier, but I did not I did not insult the chastity of my sex, which I always thought was very delicate phrasing. However, if you and I, Tony, were to meet at Cobb's Corner and sit down for a dram at the tavern there, I would drink you right there under the table, sir. I promise you that is the truth as well. I like a drink every once in a while for sure, but the thing is I can't handle very many, so I guarantee that was the truth. And that is something that I wanted to ask you about, because with you spending time with men on the battlefield, sleeping next to them, and not eating as much as you'd like, but eating sometimes next to them, how did you deal with all the vulgarities that men can, the way men can be, the way men talk about women when it's just men standing around? How did you deal with that? I had already known it, because I grew up with boys. These soldiers in the Continentals were no different than the boys on the Thomas homestead. They were learning of their affections toward women. At the same time, I was learning of my affections toward men, and I learned to speak of it in a manner akin to their own. It was never, to me, something that insulted my feminine senses. It was always quite natural to me to hear them speaking, and almost more comforting. I was 
always more crude, perhaps, than I should have been. Jenny, the girl I mentioned prior, the young Negro lass, she would often tell me that I spoke in a manner that was uncouth and or inappropriate for the fairer sex. And I told her I knew not know, I knew no other way of how to speak. So believe me, I could let it unfurl here, but now I am a mother and I have four children and I have perhaps softened in my age. There was a time where you either couldn't be or were not as soft as you are right now, where there was a lot of killing. How do you feel about killing on the battlefield? There is no worse feeling in the world than identifying that your sole purpose in life is to end the lives of others, which as a soldier of the battlefield is in that moment your only purpose. Kill and do not die and then keep doing it until the battle has ended. That was a different feeling than I ever thought I would experience. I did not know how I would respond to it until it happened. There is blindness that comes over you at that time, and you see nothing, and you feel nothing, and that includes pain or fear, and you don't even see the fear in others until you have removed the bayonet from their chest and and then this moment washes over you where you see what you have done and you still in that moment don't have the ability to ponder its true consequences because the next person has come towards you with the barrel pointed towards your face we were often engaged in hand-to-hand combat in the campaign in the Hudson River Valley of New York in the latter years of the war. So not all soldiers experienced this, but many of us in the Continentals did very much know the horrors of hand-to-hand combat. And it is only in the by the campfire when the day is done, as you are wiping the blood from your hands and cleaning the powder and the rust from your barrel of your musket, that you come to terms with what you have done and you reckon with yourself in that moment and you judge yourself as though you are standing at the gates and being judged by God Almighty and you must have passion and compassion for yourself and not everyone was able to do that and I watched many a good man lose their senses because of what they had done and what they had seen and were unfit to fight thereafter and yet were often made to do so. There are going to be a few times in this conversation that I could say something accidentally that is incredibly insensitive or offensive. And so if that happens, please forgive me because it is unintentional. I have nothing but respect for you and what you have done. But you mentioned God, and I'm wondering how you think God will judge you. I believe this war was fought with good intentions. I believe this war was fought for the rights of man and women, though I have yet to see the latter come to fruition in our new nation. I believe this war was fought with integrity, albeit a variance of traditional rules of warfare, rules of warfare, in fact, that were necessary for our success. And we had the whole world in many ways behind us, for England and Parliament have been very harsh on many in this great world and in many ways I felt God was on our side providence was there fighting alongside us and alongside our French brothers and with the good graces of 
those in the Netherlands who helped us in ways fiscal. And I believe that God being on our side and providence guiding us, that this was the way God had intended it to go. You must recall, sir, that we had not an army when this war began. And we were facing the strongest army in the world. And at many moments in this war for independence, we stood teetering at the edge of an abyss. And it was Washington who, like a god, if I may so compare him, because I do believe that he is, pardon me, like a god, and will always remain so in our minds, that he kept us from falling into the abyss of the hell that we knew would be our futures if Britain maintained its tyranny, its tyrannical grips on our throats and our pockets. So I do not believe that my reckoning, and I actually do say that in time, all bad deeds do become validated or in time a man or in my case a woman will have time to justify any bad deeds that they may have carried out in their life and although I believe the killing of any man is undeniably a bad deed in time I have convinced myself and I hope others that it was justified for the case of freedom the killing of other people it's you have to find some way to settle this in, in your head and get comfortable with it because wars are going to be fought. And you got to wonder, as I ask that question, who knows if it's right or wrong? But I, I do know one thing. There's a whole lot of killing in the Bible, that's for sure. And it just raises the question, is this just part of living? And I guess the way you reconcile this, I, I find it very interesting. It makes a lot of sense because if if powers like England went unchecked indefinitely, then they just hold the they'd rule the whole world and put the whole world under their thumb. It would just be another kind of slavery. Uh, there'd be no end to their tyranny, I'm guessing. That is exactly what they had in mind. This was a true demonstration of a desire for global domination. And it is not without considering that while at the same time we were rebelling, those unfortunate souls down in Asia in India, they were being enslaved and their land was taken from them and harvested with crops unnatural for the profit of the British East India Company. For many years, we traded with the Orient and the British Empire would reap the agriculture, would reap the lands of the Orients of tea, uh, which is a naturally occurring crop in that area. And then there were new lands taken in Asia and foreign crops that were, in many senses, crops of fiscal benefit, cash crops, were planted in land unfamiliar and thereby weakened the land of its soil and of its natural beauty. This was happening at the same time. So it is very easy to think, oh, we... Americans were fighting for our self-government, and that is a noble fight. And it is easy to forget that we were also fighting, albeit indirectly, for the rights of others who were being at the same time tyrannized outside of the Americas. Let me go back to the, the battlefield for a minute. As a woman on the battlefield, and and one of the few, I understand that there were others, but not many, for my understanding, but as a woman on the battlefield, did this give you some sort of advantage somehow over the men? It's sort of interesting that you 
it brings to mind a story of piracy in the golden age of piracy. There are women. I seem to recall the names Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. I do believe it is Mary Reed who is known, and I chuckle, for when you hear it, you will understand why the subject can cause a bit of unsettling, who, upon facing combat, generally with a sword, with a male competitor, a male foe, would rip open her shirt and expose her breasts to the gentleman, thereby shocking him into such a state of paroxysms and paralysis that she was able to overcome her foe and move on to the next. And I often think, (laughs) what would have happened if I had tried such a maneuver? Yet the thought of being seen by my brothers-in-arms fighting alongside me was far more frightening than the potential leverage I would gain over one or two who fought in front of me or against me, I should say. So, did I have an upper hand or leverage in other ways? I do believe as a woman, I am inclined to have a greater ability to march further. I tire less quickly. I believe that women with the power of creating life can sustain much higher degrees of pain than our male brothers, our brothers of the cruder sex, are are not able to understand the limitations of pain in the same manner that a woman who will eventually bear a child is able to withstand. So between the endurance, which permits me to fight without fatigue for longer and march for longer distances, in addition to the higher threshold for pain, I do believe there was some benefit to being of the fairer sex, as we have described, on the field. Yes. I want to ask you about the pain thing, but I can't get the pirates opening their shirt out of my head. And I'm trying to think what would happen if you did do that. If you can find Mary Reed, I'd like to personally give her a call. (laughs) I'll see if I can. Maybe we can get us both on the line at some point. But I'm thinking of what would happen in that situation, and I think I know exactly what men would do in that situation. I think if you had two men, two two lines of men that were running towards each other with bayonets, and a woman did that on the battlefield, I think the battle stops right there for a couple it seconds. Would, it on would. Both sides. And then, I don't know, maybe a minute later, everybody figures out what's going on, and then everybody starts killing everybody. But that is so interesting. I haven't heard that story. Do you think, as a woman with the ability to create life, did you find yourself on the battlefield playing the role of a man, or did you find yourself playing the role of a... Were you acting motherly to some of these people, to some of maybe the soldiers that couldn't handle the stresses of the battlefield? I had told the gentleman around me that I was a 15-year-old boy, oh, that's and that right. was in an effort to have them not bother me and tease me perhaps less than they were. they call me Molly because I can't grow whiskers, but... And by whiskers, I do mean facial hair. Right. But if that were not the case, I probably would have adopted a more maternal or nurturing sense. And then for those who were injured or were needy, that is the adoption that I did pursue. I know no other way but to care for someone who is hurt. And I don't believe that any man in the circumstance, if he is capable of doing so, would act differently. For we are brothers on the battlefield. We are brothers in arms. And when one is injured or sick, we are all responsible for caring for them because 
that is the strength of our army. If we are not able to care for our fellow man, then we are not able to fight for our fellow man. Although, as I mentioned with Private Snow, I did hold him in my arms. I did feed him what we were given, which was very little. And I did caress his cheek as he faded into nothing. And, and I will say that he, I believe, did understand in those last moments of his existence that I was not who I said I was for those very things that I have stated. It is not that he thought it was unusual or untrue for me to have taken care of him, but it was the manner in which I touched his face or I handled his body when moving him that gave him the understanding that I was not a 15-year-old boy. I don't know if he knew what I am, but he did understand that I am not a 15-year-old boy. That something was not as it appeared. Correct. Did you intentionally change your voice, or were you, because I'm a, I don't know if at that time in your life, because you were in your early 20s at this yes. time, is that right? Yes. Was your voice deeper? Was it high-pitched at the time? Did you adjust it? I've never had a high-pitched voice. I've never, it's not, it's never been something that has, perhaps I, I would have, fared much worse had I attempted to enlist with a voice as light and airy as those some of those women around me, but maybe it is my good fortune that I have never had it. Of course, when I was a young girl, yes, I spoke in a tone of youth. However, I never did have what would be described as a light and airy voice. I've always spoken strongly. I educated myself. And I learned from a young age that if I were to be, if I were to be heard at all, even as a not only as a woman but as a servant, if I were to be heard at all, I needed to learn how to speak in a manner that exhibited my education. And my education is what I gave myself, and I'm very proud of that. And so, in that, I think came a gravitas of understanding that. A man takes a woman a little more seriously if perhaps she can speak with a weight of her voice that shows confidence, that shows capability, that shows wisdom, and that is how I learned to speak. Perhaps when I began my service, I forced my voice down a little bit more in the hopes that this would give me a greater disguise. It was not necessarily something I could maintain on a moment-by-moment basis. But I don't believe my natural speaking voice is, is so unlike the lower octave that I attempted to pursue. I think it is, in fact, more natural. And as I was as tall as the men and as strong as the men due to my work in manual labor since I had been of the ripe age of 10, I had already 12 years of hard labor on under my belt and, and the stature to exemplify that. So the voice was of little consequence. You'd mentioned being as tall as the men several times and that just you were strong. And I find it interesting that when you enlisted, you ended up with a group of elite military men. And yes, it seems to me, I'd like to hear about that, but it seems to me that if you're going to be in a group of elite people, the odds of you making some more, some sort of mistake that would reveal the deception, it, it would be more likely because these are elite warriors that that operate at a high level. Didn't wasn't that the more dangerous way to go, or how did that come about? The elite warriors that you are speaking of, the light 
light infantry scouts. Essentially, we were rangers who foraged in advance of the army to ensure that the trail we were taking was a safe passage. And if it were not a safe passage, to report back to our officers as to what type of risks we might encounter as an army traveling through the area, the region, and what type of firepower we might need to overcome that enemy or that danger. And what it actually did, although yes, you are right, it put me in situations where perhaps my abilities were being scrutinized more than those who were sitting together around the campfire. It kept me on the move quite a bit, and it meant that I was not necessarily working around the same soldiers all the time. If you look at the muster rolls, I am often serving under a different officer. So at one point, I'm in Captain George Webb's command, but at others... I have other offices under which I am serving. And so it's one of the realities of it was keeping me on the move was actually much safer than keeping me seated around men who became more and more familiar with me each and every passing day by the campfire. And there is not so many, as you mentioned, manners of which I could make a mistake or reveal myself. Of course, some consider the act of Call the call upon of nature upon one's body to be a, a moment where I potentially could have revealed myself. However, we women are inclined to behave in the same manner that men are, depending on how that call of nature calls upon the body. And we were not really exposing our bodies to one another in any way. Bathing was not an option for many of us unless the situation had grown so dire, you had perhaps been confronted by a skunk or so on, that we would be removing our kit to bathe in the river. It was more so of wash your face, wash your hands, and keep on going. So as a matter of fact, being on the move, being a scout, was actually a far more beneficial way for me to conceal my identity. It was assumed that we were men because we were chosen for this. And there was much less scrutiny because of that honor. One of the questions that, as I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was asking, what questions would you like to ask? And one of the questions was, look, this, there's no way that you can pull this off. You're not going to be able to fool all these men for 18 months that a woman is a man. Something's going to come up where they're going to figure it out. And as you hear about the disguises that you used, I'm realizing right now that the disguise was more than just wrapping something around your breasts and talking in the right voice. Your disguise was everything. Your disguise was the story that I'm a 15-year-old boy. Your disguise was this concept of constantly moving so nobody could get too familiar with you where you know they would figure it out. And so it wasn't just about an outfit. It was the whole experience of how you, how you did everything was your disguise. It's interesting. You had asked once before if I had wished I were a man, and I can't say that I wished I were a man at any other point in my life than in those moments where I had to sleep in the canvas A-frame with other men head to foot as a man rolls over and his hand slaps my body in an area where something should be and it is not. And those are the moments when I thought, dear God, if I could only be a man, if I could only be of the stronger sex or the cruder sex, what a what a breeze this would be, what a joy this moment would be. But of course, it was nothing but horror. Those were perhaps the 
horrifying moments was sleeping at night. And fortunately, the, although the tents might accommodate six men, they weren't all sleeping together at the same time. Some were standing guard, so we took shifts. So we did have a bit more space in there than some might believe. However, you are correct. I believed, I had to believe I was a boy in some corner of my mind in order for this to work. However, I will state that my months of combat, I cannot but believe some knew because there were some who were highly intuitive men and there were others who were highly inept and incapable of thought, which is what makes society great is that we have the balance of those people. With hope, we have balance and not a, an overwhelming presence of one or the other. But it was more so that I had proven my, I had proven my usefulness, if that makes sense. I mentioned I have fairly good needlework skills. Precision of the needle is, I did stitch myself together, so I will boast a bit about those skills. And I had started when I was quite young. Now, as a soldier in the army, we have to fix, we have to repair our own kits. And a kit for anyone who is listening and enjoying our conversation is our uniform. And we are not issued more than one uniform in a season. And a season could be much longer than the season that you are thinking. I don't mean a season by winter, fall, and spring. A season by usually six months or more. So we in- inevitably you are damaging. Buttons will pop. Seams will split, tears in the knees, patchwork must be done, needlework to repair seams, new buttons cast and sewed on, and many a man had not the skills to accomplish this in any reasonable amount of time, and I couldn't sit back and watch someone struggle with something that I knew would take me less than 10 minutes to complete, would take them a day. So I would often assist, and I think that along with my desire and willingness to volunteer for missions that kept me on the move, it was useful enough to the soldiers around me that they knew perhaps something was off about the 15-year-old boy, but they didn't care because I was helpful and I was volunteering for assignments that they did not want to do. So that in itself made me more useful at camp as a whatever I may have been than to not be present. Some of the more intelligent ones were thinking, boy, that 15-year-old Robert Shirtliff, he can really work a needle. Yes, I assume they were thinking that. What really intrigues me is, and what I have often grappled with over the years, and have even asked him, because I'm very proud to call General John Patterson a friend, both now in my life and when I served directly under him. As a waiter to a general, You are, as the name implies, a waiter. You wait on them. That means you are close by them at all times. That means you live within their same quarters, the officer's quarters or the officer's tent. You are there in the morning, the first person he sees to serve him coffee and food, and you are often the last person in the evening. You are there to dispatch letters written in his hand to other officers, perhaps on the other side of the encampment, perhaps even further beyond the perimeters of our camp and to look this man straight in the eye day after day or some cases with a few days span in between and when I was on some sort of assignment that took me away from camp to look into his eyes and know that he 
believed what he wanted to believe, to look into my eyes on a nearly daily basis and never once question what he wanted to believe I am, was perhaps the most interesting of the, let's call them, experiments of science, the experiments he, of nature. He knew. Natural philosophy, let's use that terminology. Okay. He knew. He, he knew. Is this I why don't he know. Made, is this why he made you his waiter? Deborah Sampson's father was a scoundrel. At first, the family was told that he died in a shipwreck, but as she said, the truth was much different. Not only did he abandon the family, leaving them penniless, but then he moved to Maine, had a common-law wife, and two more kids. Deborah had no choice. She had to take drastic action. In the next episode, you're going to hear about the moment she was discovered by Dr. Barnabas Binney. While unconscious from a fever, the doctor began to undress his male patient, and, well, she'll tell you the rest. If you have not subscribed yet, please do. We'll see you next week for part two of Deborah Sampson on the Calling History podcast. By the way, to learn more about Deborah Sampson and other influential and often forgotten figures in history, check out historyatplay.com. And you can learn more in the episode notes. See you next week. 